professional climber Robin Robbins wrote a piece in Sports Illustrated a few years back in which he described the greatest essential for the sport of which all you climber types will be well aware. If you're keenly aware and aware of the rocks and what you're doing on it, if we're honest with ourselves and our capabilities and our weaknesses, if we avoid committing ourselves beyond what we know is safe, then we will climb safely. For climbing is an exercise in reality. He who sees it clearly is on safe ground, regardless of his experience or skill. But he who sees reality as he would like it to be may have his illusions rudely stripped from his eyes when the ground comes up fast. <laughs> yeah. I think this applies to every aspect of our lives, especially to our faith. And no more than our faith, quite honestly. Because real faith is an exercise in reality. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, you'll find it in the back of the bulletin there printed for you. We're taking a break from Genesis for a few weeks as we transition to Avon Lake over the next couple weeks. We're going to stay in the lectionary, went in Pentecost in the lectionary, Trinity Sunday with the lectionary, and we'll resume Genesis on June 19th. And what our narrative today tells us about what faith is from a really a very kind of a surprising source, a Roman centurion. You wouldn't expect it from a pagan. But here he is. Because what his faith tells us is what faith is, how we get it, and where our faith takes us. So that's what we're going to cover this morning. What faith is, how do we get it, and where does it take us? Let's set the stage. What is faith? Verse 1 we see the stage being set. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Well, what have his sayings been up to this point in Luke's gospel? Well, you see in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount famously is in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And what we see is the Beatitudes, the attitudes that the follower of Jesus should have. We see him calling his people to love their enemies. We call that people who call themselves Christians are not to judge others. It doesn't mean we don't judge one another in the church and call ourselves to follow. But before we go out judging themselves, we need to look at ourselves, right? That's what Jesus calls us to. And he calls his followers to be fruit-bearing believers. And that our lives are noticed, not only within the church, but in the community. So that's what he's been talking about. And above all, as he wraps that up, he says, make sure you build your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ, not on shifting sand. So that's what he's been teaching as he enters Capernaum. And this centurion has heard about him. He's got a sick servant whom we'll call Lucius. There's no biblical evidence for that. But when I say Lucius, you know who I'm talking about, all right? So Lucius, the servant, is sick. And all of a sudden, he sends some Jewish elders of the synagogue, which he's built to them, asking Jesus to heal him. Verse 2, 
Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. The centurion was the backbone of the Roman legion army. Centurions were battle-tested. They were brave. They were cool under pressure. They weren't hotheads. They were known to make wise decisions in the midst of heat of battle. And they stood their ground to the point of death. They had survived battle. And therefore they were well paid, well respected, and well feared. And so this centurion, although he had that status in the culture, was loved by the Jews in Capernaum. He's a virtuous man. And if you look carefully, you notice what the elders say about him. He loves our nation. Which means he doesn't have the typical Roman racist attitude toward conquered inhabitants that the typical Roman centurion might have. And he built them their synagogue, which probably means he's a, a Gentile worshiper of the Jewish God. He's a believing Gentile. At the very least, he's incredibly generous. He was a virtuous man, good and just and devout. And he has faith. And what we see here are two kinds of faith being demonstrated if you look closely. So he sends these Jewish elders to the synagogue and notice the basis by which they ask Jesus to heal the servant. They say in the second part of verse 4, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. That's their words, not his. Right? But that's their spin. He is worthy to have you do this for him. In our era, we would say, imagine someone gave us $5 million and we got to build our church where we wanted it to from the ground up. Will we be grateful? You bet. Would we care if he was a believer or not? No, we wouldn't. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome anytime. As a matter of fact, he's worthy, Jesus, to have you heal his servant. He built our English Gothic mini cathedral, complete with pipe organ, cry room, nursery, youth room, and a cafe outside the doors. He's worthy. My friends, that's the approach of the religious. That's not saving faith. Jesus, you really ought to do this. That's the way perhaps you stumbled in here this morning. That's the way you approach Jesus. Jesus, I'm here this morning. I didn't go play golf. I could have gone on my boat. But I'm here for you. You should be pleased about it. I was reading the news and I closed that window on my computer and I got all the way here. I am worthy to have you come into my life. And I've got some points on the scale and I'm going to have a few more before this day is out. Notice, Jesus does not utter a word, does he? 
in this text. Not a thing at that point. So he begins to head off for the house where we find another demonstration of faith. That's not the elder faith that we've just seen. It's a second delegation. And I imagine it's just kind of the way you invited somebody to your home, but you really didn't expect them to come. All of a sudden you find out they are coming. And the house isn't cleaned. Or whatever reason. So you try to kind of head it off at the pass. So being a centurion, I imagine he sent the Jewish elders first because he wasn't sure how a Jewish rabbi would respond to a pagan Roman request. So he said, okay, I'll send the, head, the big guys first. All of a sudden he finds out they're coming, and so he sends a second delegation. And this time it's the centurion's friends with his own words, and his approach to Jesus is radically different. Verse 6, and Jesus went with them. And he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Get the difference between elder faith and genuine faith? Elder faith. Jesus, I am worthy for you to do this. Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to do a thing. It's one of the reasons I love the prayer of humble access we pray as we approach the Lord's table. Lord, we do not presume to gather up the crumbs under your table. Right? We do not presume... Genuine faith says, I am not worthy. I have nothing to bring to you. I have nothing. And it's a passionate plea. Because that's genuine. It's a passionate faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that our National Church Development Survey, that's one of the characteristics of healthy churches. Healthy churches have passionate trust in Jesus Christ. And yet I hear all the time people across the West Shore saying, you know, I get this Jesus thing, but I, I don't have to believe like that. I believe in God, but not necessarily, you know, that way. I think all good people can connect with God. I think the most practical response to that is, if you do not absolutely see the necessity of your best friend Jesus dying upon the cross for you, pouring himself out for you, loving you to death, you're not going to have anything passionate to say about your faith. You have an elder faith. Oh, it'll be ethical. It'll be rational. But it won't be passionate. You won't weep with the weeping. You won't mourn with the mourning. You won't have freedom. You won't have liberation. You won't have salvation. See, genuine faith is a passionate faith like the centurion. And it grants a new direction I'm sure this other centurion friend said, what has happened to you, Lucius? But not just Jesus in general. It's a transfer of our whole life. The foundation of our life. He's talking about build your life on the foundation of the rock of Christ Jesus. You have a new foundation. Then you have this. And it's through the attraction of recognizing that all Jesus has done for us on the cross. Then you'll be able to pour out your life for him and experience freedom like the centurion who didn't care what the other Romans said. My servant whom I love is sick. 
I'm going to go to Jesus. And what the centurion is saying, Lord, I've always trusted in my own moral living, my own virtue, my own slavery to self-respect. But you're the master, you're my savior, and I'm now free. Heal him, please. See, saving faith is not just believing in Jesus in general, or even believing that he did all these wonderful things, or just liking him in a general way. It's finding out the central things of our lives, these most basic foundational truths and life trusts, and believing them and following him and transferring all of them to him. That's the reason why you see when you read the old journals of, of people that heard George Whitfield and John Wesley preach, not their writings, but the people who heard them. Nathan Cole was converted in Middletown, Connecticut in 1741 after George Whitfield preached there. He said these words, And hearing Mr. Whitfield preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my own righteousness would not save me. That's the moment. A new foundation. But that's not all. How does that happen in this new direction toward Jesus? It happens when we trust in him totally. Because that's what the word faith, pistis, means. It means to trust in, resting in, having faith in. And it comes to us like the centurion. Look what it says. When the centurion heard about Jesus. He just heard about Jesus. He never saw him. Just like you. We heard about him. His faith was certainly incomplete. You know, he didn't know the prayer of humble access like you do. He didn't know, familiar with the 39 articles or some of the questions of the catechism or even taking little journeys. You know, gosh, the Ryans have memorized the books of the Bible. You're, huh? Talk to them. They have. So have everybody else in the journey groups. You know, we don't do it just so we can do it, we do it because we're more familiar with the word. We know more than he did. But Jesus marvels at his faith. Marvels. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Hear all that Jesus was doing. And God uses that word. And it's not flashy. It comes through our ears. It softens our hearts. When we hear and see all that Jesus has done. And it changes us. And people say, well, you can't be sure about that. You can't be certain that Jesus is all that the Bible says he is. To which you and I can respond to. Well, are you certain about that? Are you sure that you're unsure that you're sure about that? Because that's a faith statement. What they just told you, you can't be sure. Are you sure? That's, that's a statement of faith. Wow, you're a religious person. You see, everyone has some kind of faith. And the centurion tells us that it's not the quality of our faith, it's the object of our faith. You've heard me say that a lot over this past year. And it comes into our lives most often in times of crisis. In times of disruption. It took a sick servant for the centurion to get it. Maybe it took a crisis in your life. 
But the reality is, what's amazing about the centurion is that this is for a slave. You see, slaves in Roman law were simple property. And when they were of no use to you, you threw them away. He didn't do this. He loved this slave. He cared for this slave. And his life is being changed because of his ever-growing faith in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. He hears of Jesus. He responds to Jesus. And not only is his servant changed, he is changed forever. See, faith comes as we hear it and we respond in humility like the centurion, not with elder faith. Just like John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, he was an arrogant, prideful, rude slave trader. Awful human being. And yet he met Jesus and changed forever. The greatest hymn in Christendom, arguably, he came to recognize in humility, not in his pride, that Jesus is the one true God. He came to him in humility, and years later he wrote the words which we sing several times a year, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now... I'm blind. I'm found. Now I see. It was a risky profession. Lucrative. He didn't have to leave it. So where does faith take us? That's what it is. It's how we get it. You see, faith is an exercise in reality. He who sees clearly, and not merely as he would like to see, is on safe ground. Do you see yourself? With elder faith deserving God's grace? You know, I give money. I do ministry. I'm deserving of it. Or do you see it humbly like the centurion this morning? If you see it like the elders, you're not seeing reality. Face the truth that apart from the grace of God... In Jesus Christ, your heart is desperately wicked. Self is at the center of your universe, and the reality is that, like the centurion, you're not worthy of God's love. No one is worthy of God's love. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus comes to each and every one of us with arms stretched open upon the cross for each and every one of us. Because Jesus is God. Paul writes of Jesus like this in Colossians Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is God, in other words. He continues in that Next verse in Colossians, saying that he's also Savior. Verse 19 of Colossians 1. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what he's done. That's how much he loves you. And he is our only hope. That's good news. 
He's the rock that we can put our step on as we climb. I had some friends. I was in Wyoming in 1980. That's 36 years ago. Just dawned on me. I had some friends. They were from Cleveland, by the way. They said, Gene, there's this cool rock formation. When you climb it, you can see Laramie and Cheyenne. I said, cool, let's go. They go, all right, follow us. And I started putting my hiking boots on. They said, uh-uh, you can't wear those. Just wear your sneakers. I said, okay. So I'm thinking this is a path, you know, just a path like you're walking on. Oh, no. No ropes, no helmets, no nothing. I get halfway up. You can't go down. It's either I go up or I fall off and die. There was, we were up within eye shot of the, of the top of this rock formation, and my heart's beating about 220 beats a minute, and I'm, a few choice words for these guys from Cleveland, saying several words about the Browns, as a matter of fact. That was the year of the cardiac kids, by the way. Fall of 1980, right? Right, Brian Seif? Where's, where's Robert and Linda? You know, help me out here. Um, I'm climbing, just saying, I hate you guys. I hate you guys. And he said, listen to me. All you got to do at this point is put your foot on that. I go, well, this is closer. They said, if you put your foot there, you're going to fall. But if you put your foot here, you're going to make it. It didn't feel right. It didn't look right to me. And I had to put my body... I'm not a flexible guy. I had to get really flexible and get myself on this rock in order to keep climbing up. But I had to trust him. Because isn't that the way the sin is? What feels right oftentimes is not what God wants from us. Because sin never feels like sin, does it? Our own way feels natural. But initially stepping the faith that we need to have, it's there, we see it. We just got to take that step. And it's not a blind step, by the way. We got the evidence ahead of us. We just got to listen to our maker and creator and follow and take that step. Got up to the top of that rock formation. Looked east, I could see Cheyenne. Looked west, I could see Laramie. And then I had a few choice words for these guys. And I've never climbed again. My friends, real biblical faith is an exercise in reality. True seeing. Do you see yourself as you are? Do you see Jesus as he is? If so, let's do that genuine trust in him and him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day. We thank you for the centurion who shows us what real faith is. Lord, in our own natural setting, we, we, we tend to resort to elder faith. I pray you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help each and every one of us to resist that in our lives. To turn to you, to love you, and to serve you. For your honor's sake. And that we would know that peace that surpasses understanding because we're committing to you the safe ground for true faith in you is an exercise in reality. We pray you would increase reality in us more and more with each passing day, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the confidence in your word.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.